know, frankly, there have always been people outside the system. Uh, the question is to what, how effective are people outside the system to push the system to change. Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by a very special guest. But before we get to the interview, I just want to make a quick note that this is our last episode of the 2015-16 school year. But don't worry, it's just our regular summer hiatus. We'll be back in the early fall with more insight and analysis from some of the top minds in the world. Today we're joined by former United States Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who joined us just before delivering her commencement address to the Kennedy School's 2016 graduating class. Any chance we could get a preview of what you uh, have to say? Well, first of all, I'm delighted to be with you and really honored to have been asked to come and talk to the graduating class of the Kennedy School. And what I am going to be talking about is how important public services, um, the importance of dealing by these very uh, diverse students who have uh, decided that they want to spend their life in policy and politics and international affairs in a number of different ways, kind of a a charge about what kind of a world uh, they can make, uh, because my generation has screwed things up a bit, uh, and um, all the subjects that are out there, the challenge of technology, uh, the challenge of interconnectedness and of the international economy, globalization, but mostly it's about the uh, messages that John Kennedy gave to my generation in terms of uh, that America cannot wall itself off from the world. Mm -hmm. We are essential to the functioning of the international system. Your generation was uh, certainly activist in nature. Today, we're seeing the same thing. Uh, You see Black Lives Matter. Um, You see a call for a political revolution under Bernie Sanders. It seems like there's a difference between these two things in that uh, in one case, in perhaps your generation, um, people seem to be engaging the system in order to make change. Um, Whereas now, it seems like people are trying to go outside of the system or trying to upset the system itself. Uh, Do you see that? And do you think that's a a driving force right now? I I think it is. And I think one of the issues, I I stole this line from somebody, but I do talk, I think it works so well, and actually it's a good answer to what you asked, is that um, people are talking to their governments on 21st century technology. The governments hear them on 20th century technology and are providing 19th century responses. And so policy answers and government are not meeting um, the developments in technology. There's a real gap, and there is no confidence in the institutions. And because there are channels on the outside, i.e. social media, that can in fact deliver messages, um, that is creating one of uh, the questions as to who's in charge and why and how. However, I think the point that has to be made is being outside the system makes it difficult to make changes. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, I think that what one learns, and it is one of my messages, is that it's important for people with policy ideas to come into the system and figure out how to work it for change. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do think there, you know, frankly, there have always been people outside the system uh, the question is to what, how effective are people outside the system to push the system to change? Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, I, I think uh, many would 
respond that being part of a system that is not working may corrupt your more pure ideals. What do you say to those people? Well, I think the following, you know, speaking in national security terms often, there's this idea that there is an idealist view and a realist view of foreign policy. I think that's a false dichotomy. You need both. Uh, mainly because I can never figure out who I am. Am I an idealistic realist or a realistic idealist? Um, and you need both. And I sometimes talk about it, and this is true also in domestic policy, is you need the, it's like a hot air balloon. You need idealism to give it lift, and you need ballast in order to give it direction. Uh, the, so I, the realist aspect of it. And what I try to talk about is we all do have our roles in terms of, I think human rights advocates, for instance, need to push the United States government for the best human rights policies that there possibly can be. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, there are those in the government who have to find some kind of a path that works. So I often talk about the doability doctrine. You know, what is it, uh, how you put uh, policy together in a way that you can get some forward motion, not be stuck in the status quo, and see the government as a tool that can move the process forward with pressure from the outside. So mm -hmm. it's that combination of democracy that uh, I advocate. We're moving into a new era for communication, certainly with citizens and their governments, um, but even between governments and how governments are dealing with uh, non-state actors. That includes everything from, I guess, you know, ISIS to uh, major cities, which have tremendous power just on their own. How do you think foreign policy is going to adapt to that shift? Well, it's something that I've been talking about. I'm very glad you asked that because I've been talking about this for some time, which is that the international system is based on the nation state. Uh, and that governments talk to each other via diplomats and um, in a variety of larger expanded ways. But non-state actors have not been really included in the institutional infrastructure. So, for instance, I've talked about the fact that at the UN, um, Lithuania has been president of the Security Council. Coca-Cola has a budget that is like 50 times larger than the budget of Lithuania, and it isn't at the table, um, even though it deals with issues of water and uh, environmental issues in countries where they do local bottling, any number of different things. So you've got the non-state actors that, as you point out, are from terrorist groups all the way uh, to um, a school like uh, the Kennedy School, mm -hmm. uh, and or Bill Gates, or people that somehow need to be in the system earlier. And we haven't figured that out, mm -hmm. because it's one thing to be brought to the table once the problem is there. It's another to be at the table when the decisions are being made. And the lack of faith in institutions doesn't just apply to national governments. It applies to the international system. That, as you pointed out, was created in, you know, after the Second World War, in the uh, second part of the 40s, early mm -hmm. 50s. And so we have an awful lot of work to do uh, in terms of trying to figure out what is a system that responds to the needs of the people, which that, after all, is the most important thing. The citizens of countries, how are they treated? How do they have input into changes? Because change is essential. Mm -hmm. It seems the international system is dealing with uh, a lot of threats right now. It's being challenged, uh, maybe most importantly, um, in Europe and the Middle East, where we're now seeing a refugee crisis. 
Um, can you tell me about what's, what's going on in Istanbul and how it applies? Well, let me just say the following thing. We are dealing with a refugee crisis uh, and a humanitarian crisis that is the largest uh, since the Second World War. Um, and what makes things a little bit different than during the Second World War was we know about it. We can see it. Thanks to social media, there are pictures of people drowning, uh, and not just children, but and, or boats capsizing, or then people being treated terribly. I, I always say they're being treated like dogs, except American dogs are treated better than um, a lot of the refugees. And so part of the problem is that um, these people who want, who are leaving primarily Syria because of the fact that they're being gassed by their own leader uh, and threatened and not fed, um, are leaving and need help. Um, and yet at the same time, the system has failed. For instance, even though the UN has a great refugee organization, they weren't on top of it early, or the Europeans had a system in terms of looking at what happens at borders, um, and that isn't working properly. So the numbers have been inundating. And then creating an issue, which is that uh, whereas I believe that the European countries should be helpful to their refugees, and by the way, there's a story in the paper today about a place in Germany that all of a sudden has discovered they're really happy to have refugees, especially boys that are playing soccer. <laughs> Their soccer team has old people on it, and they need, and it's just an example of the fact that there are things for people to do if they are welcomed. And mm -hmm. so what is happening is in Istanbul, there is a um, conference going on trying to figure out what are the ways to help the refugees. And um, it's something, I'm a refugee, frankly. I uh, mm -hmm. Once in England during the war, and then when we came to the United States in 1948. I don't have a terrible story, uh, but I really felt so welcomed by uh, this country. And one of the things is that um, I believe that uh, it's the United States cannot tell other countries what to do unless we bring more refugees in to the United States at this time. I fly mm -hmm. across the United States an awful lot. It is a big country. We have plenty of room, and we have been known for our generosity. So I often quote my father on this statement. In England, when we were there during the war, people would say, we're so sorry your country's been taken over by a terrible dictator. You're welcome here. What can we do to help you, and when are you going home? When we came to the United States after the communists took over Czechoslovakia, People would say, we're so sorry your country's been taken over by a terrible system. You're welcome here. What can we do to help you, and when will you become a citizen? And my father would say, that is what America's about, and I think we have to remember what we're about. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing, and I might be going out on a limb here, but I'm guessing you don't agree with uh, the Republican nominee on uh, uh, blocking all Muslims at the border? <laughs> That is a really wild guess. Uh, no, I think it's appalling. And I, and I have to say the following thing is this country, first of all, uh, we are a country of diversity uh, and have been strengthened by the number of people that have come in from different countries. Mm. We cannot, and I have a sentence in my speech, we cannot wall ourselves off. Um, I think that, uh, so for us as a country, it is, I think it is one of the most preposterous statements that I've ever heard. Uh, I do think that if we are going to be an example to other countries, then we have to remember who we are, 
um, and decide that um, what is going on in Syria, and then, um, as you mentioned, in Turkey, we cannot just tell people what to do without uh, being good examples ourselves. Mm -hmm. Turkey is in a very complicated situation. Uh, it is um, um, a country that spans two continents in an unbelievable geographical location, trying to deal with a problem, mm -hmm. um, and yet also has views of its own about how some of the very serious issues that are taking place in the Middle East generally and Syria are dealt with, um, and then how to bear the burden uh, without suffering economically themselves. So mm -hmm. it is on the front lines of all of this. Mm -hmm. President Erdogan has been, uh, of Turkey, has been repeatedly admonished for clamping down a little bit on the democratic system in Turkey. Um, European countries have been admonished themselves for dealing with Erdogan. He certainly has a lot of leverage in that um, a lot of these countries are trying to keep um, uh, refugees out. How? What's your take on that situation? Well, it's it's an amazing deal, if you want to know. And and uh, I I just uh, was in Europe and I met um, in Vienna with a, an organization that has spent a lot of time on refugees. And there were some representatives of human rights there. Then one of the things I've done is create a group of former foreign ministers, uh, and it's under the auspices of the Aspen Institute. And uh, we were talking about refugees as the issue uh, this time and trying to figure out. Uh, whether that agreement was a good agreement or a little bit of a Faustian agreement. Um, but I think that uh, the Turks have provided a solution. And as a matter of fact, they have now, uh, the numbers going into Greece have uh, diminished significantly because of this. Mm -hmm. I do think that it's important to criticize them about their treatment in terms of um, free speech and all the various points that you mentioned. At the same time, uh, I think that as they take in these refugees, the international community has to push on making sure that they're treated fairly and that they have their human rights. But I think we have to be really careful, and it goes back to the original question that you posed to me, was how to not make the best be the enemy of the good. Uh, and to try to, to help on this very complex problem while, in fact, pushing the Turks uh, to do better on their um, internal policies uh, and to use the fact that they want to be more a part of Europe. I mean, it's a very interesting kind of uh, bargain in terms of not being zero-sum. Well, Madam Secretary, it has been an absolute honor to have you on PolicyCast today. Thank you so much. Very happy to have done this. Thanks for asking such good questions. You can find a link to Secretary Albright's commencement remarks in the show notes at hkspolicycast.org. It's definitely worth checking out. Before we leave today, I'd like to add a special note of thanks to Molly Lanzarota. Molly and I have been working together for more than four years now, and not only is she the voice you're accustomed to hearing at the end of each PolicyCast episode, but more importantly, she's been the driving force behind PolicyCast's success from the very start. Unfortunately for us, Molly's now moving on from the Kennedy School, and this will be her final episode producing PolicyCast. Her presence and contributions will be missed terribly. Thank you, Molly. Thanks also go out to the team that helped us live stream this interview on Facebook, including Molly, as well as Becky Wickle and Natalie Montana. We'll be back in the fall with more interviews, so stay tuned. And Molly, you can take it away.
You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.